Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Tony and Tara. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, we have, I think I think it's been several weeks. Uh, Tony, I think you and I coordinated this idea on LinkedIn or something. And uh, actually, no, it was a yeah. friend of you. You're going to have to, you're, we're going to have to uh, throw out some uh, um some applause to, to our friend and make sure she gets credit for connecting us. But I'm delighted to have you both here. Before we dive into our big topic, uh, how about I just ask you to introduce yourselves? Uh, Tara, how about you introduce yourself first? Yeah. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for having us on today. Uh, my name is Tara Adams. I am currently the Assistant Director of Advancement at the College of Law at the University of Illinois down in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, I've been in that position for almost five years now. 
Uh, I started my career in higher education over at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, where I was in admissions. I transitioned briefly over to the Illinois court system, where I did judicial education for the court system as a training manager before returning to my alma mater. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois. I got my law degree from the University of Illinois and recently got a master's in higher education from that institution as well. Uh, And when I am not working hard fundraising for the University of Illinois, I am also currently working on my PhD. Wow. Okay. Okay. So that's a, that's a tough act to follow. Okay. I'll do my best. Uh, uh, hi, everyone. My name is Tony Pomonis. Um, as Jason referred to it initially, uh, I'd like to give a huge shout out to our friend, Dr. Lauren Dodge, yes. who's uh, in charge of the advancement shop at Blackburn uh, College here uh-huh. in Illinois. Um, I'm a reformed serial entrepreneur. Uh, back in 2015, though, I jumped into the fundraising profession. I uh, uh, started at the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois, my alma mater. Um, And then in 2017, I sort of segued, transitioned over to the University of Illinois Foundation, where I represent a few of the system-wide entities that exist, the University of Illinois Press uh, being one. The other one is the Institute of Government and Public Affairs. And uh, for lack of a better term, Jason, I'm sort of a uh, jack of all trades, utility infielder. I go to each university in the Illinois system. That's the University of Illinois Chicago, University of Illinois Springfield, and University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and I help them with special time or need-based initiatives or pro- uh, projects centered around their three unique campaigns, capital campaigns. Uh, so, just want to thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Tara and I are beastly excited, and we're ready to dive in. Yeah, so we ask our um, uh, we ask our guests to come on with a big idea or bold opinion, and uh, I have a sense of where we're going to go with this. It's I think it's definitely a fresh and new topic, uh, something that I'm probably not terribly versed in, perhaps completely ignorant of, and uh, and, and uh, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, which one of you want to tee that up for us? Uh, I'll just jump right in, Jason. Thanks. So we we talk a lot about doing the right thing and getting caught doing it in regards of ethical fundraising. Uh So right now, uh, the United States of America is on the cusp of the largest transfer of wealth in human history. As baby boomers age out of their personal wealth, they're going to be leaving this to ensuing generations and also charitable organizations. Yeah. And what we, what we now have is, um, Oh, I I don't want to overspeak it. Uh, but I don't think it cannot, you know, it cannot be overemphasized. We have a situation in our country regarding mental health and mental capacity that has for far too long not been addressed. And when Tara and I began our research back in 2018, we learned that one in 10 65-year-olds have some form of dementia, some form of cognitive impairment that is an observable symptom, whether it's forgetfulness, uh, repeating themselves, et cetera. And we recently revamped a lot of our research. We wanted it to be uh, contemporary. We wanted it to be up to date. And we learned from the Alzheimer's Association that it is now one in nine 65-year-olds. So this is an accelerating problem in our nation. Um, and by the time our elderly populations get to be in their mid-50, or excuse me, mid-80s, so 85-year-olds, that population goes from one in nine 
to 85%. So we're talking about our vital donor uh, populations, our alumni base, our prospects, all the people that we interact with have some form of, you know, incapacity. And thus far in our profession, this has been an amazing blind spot. It's been something that has not been addressed. How do we go about conducting this work ethically? You know, what what's the the right thing to do in this situation, in that situation? And just to sort of have a little decision tree of if-then statements. So our overarching theme here that Tara and I sort of crafted and came up with is do the right thing and most importantly, get caught doing it. Uh, Tara, how, how did that sound? Did I encapsulate that I think that you well? encapsulated it perfectly. You know, I think one of the big goals of Tony and I coming on your show today, Jason, was to really kickstart this conversation about the issue of cognitive impairment in fundraising. Um, uh -huh. As we have had conversations with fundraisers at the University of Illinois, we have found that this is an incredibly prevalent issue. And unfortunately, so many fundraisers believe that it's an isolated incident. They think they're the only ones that have encountered the situation. They're looking for resources. They haven't found any. Uh, and so part of this today is our hope that we can start facilitating these conversations between fundraisers, between leadership and institutions and organizations to really have a better understanding of how widespread and prevalent this issue is uh, for all fundraisers as they're talking to their elderly donors. And so one of our the, the first the first question that sort of comes to mind, are we going to have a practical conversation like, am I sitting in front of the donor and realizing this or are we going to have a conversation? And perhaps we're going to go in both because I'm curious because <laughs> there's the there's the I'm sitting in front of the donor. Right. And, and sort of coming to this realization that 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 there's something I'm learning that I perhaps didn't know before I showed up at her home. And then there's the and then there's the practice at a a much more macro level that doesn't you know that w where we're not literally sitting in his or her living room, but we're our fundraising practices never allow us to enlighten you know it's not like a well screen or you know it's not like our database tells us that that our mm -hmm. that one in eight or of our donors happen to be suffering from some sort of mental illness, for example. And so, does it mean? I'm guessing those are the questions we're wrestling with. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. So it's all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. Right. Yes. It's the it's the the micro and the macro. Yeah. And um, I think one of the best ways I can illustrate this, Jason, is just to sort of jump into a story. Uh, and um, imagine, if you will, I'm in my first uh, nine months of my career as a fundraiser. Yeah. Um, I've got a little bit of that enterprise approach. You know, I want to go out and, and conquer the world. I'm, you know, this reformed entrepreneur. I want to make my uh, imprint on my uh, alma mater. And I head down to Florida and I go to a retirement facility and the bank of elevators opens up and I'll, I'll call them John and Jane. So John steps out and he says, Tony, um, my, my spouse, Jane, knows you're coming. She's elated that you're going to be here as an ambassador from the University of Illinois. And she's the same beautiful woman that I married 50 years ago. However, some days she is not herself. And I admit to John in that moment, John, I, I jumped into this role and the individual who was there uh, when, I, when I arrived left me a slew of resources, a portfolio. <laughs> and in this portfolio, it said that John and Jane are people you've got to go talk to right away because... Uh, Jane is on the cusp of, of starting a scholarship for our, her beloved alma mater. And I admitted to John at that point, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to be here. 
And he said, no, no, no. Um, she's expecting you. She would be wildly disappointed if you left. Mm -hmm. Just sit next to me and we'll, we'll get through this together and it'll be fantastic. So what transpired thereafter was an hour and a half conversation with this wonderful woman um, who started a, a number of newspapers around the uh, Southeast with her husband. And uh, however, there were a few uh, oddities of the conversation. She repeated herself about three times. Mm -hmm. At one time, she lost some spatial awareness. She was unsure of where she was. Uh, and another time, she felt like we were at, she thought we were at dinner and we were actually having an afternoon tea. At the end of it, um, John escorted her back to their room. He said, hang out here in the lobby. He came back down. He said, uh, I know everything that you're concerned about right now, and I want to let you know that I appreciate um, how thoughtful and, and feeling you are in this moment, uh, the, the large amount of empathy. Um, and I and my daughter will accept this proposal and we'll consider it. Uh, neither, neither one of them are alumni and we'll be in touch. And then I came back to uh, the University of Illinois. I spoke with my chief development officer, asked them how, how I comported myself, what was their grade for me. They said, you did a fantastic job, Tony. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing else I can do other than kind of pat you on the head because there are no guidelines. There are no resources. Right. There is no roadmap for what a gift officer should do. Right. And then that, that began this sort of journey, which is now uh, we're coming up on four years where Tara and I met at a case five uh, conference uh, centered around this issue of donors with dementia. We began researching, we began working with others and then presenting around the country on this topic. Um, so that's sort of a granular way of, explaining what uh, fundraisers are up against and then also what led us, what catalyzed this discussion of two things, really. It's a, it's a really uh, an applied approach so that gift officers can have a roadmap and it's the macro approach. So institutions can mitigate risk. They can deal with things as they are happening and also uh, ahead of time if they're considering the donor life cycle. Um, and then how we can arm others like ourselves uh, and institutions like ourselves to begin to prepare themselves and to to prepare their employees, their staff, their their donors and prospects and alumni on how to deal with this in an ethical framework. And Terry, no, I'm talking too much. I think you encapsulated it beautifully. Um, similar to Tony, I too have my own experience. Mine was not a face-to-face -face conversation but uh, a very concerning phone call that I had. Uh, we had discovered a scholarship mm -hmm. at the law school that had been languishing for a number of years because we never got the proper documentation back in the 80s to get it up and running. So they tasked me with tracking down some of the family members to see if we couldn't get this sorted out. We had one person in our system, one phone number, the conversation I had with this very lovely woman who was very excited to hear from the school um, was one again where she consistently forgot who I was. She didn't have a clear sense of where she was, what time it was, uh, you know, setting up an appointment to discuss something like scholarship giving was out of the question. Once that conversation ended, I put it upon myself to do some additional internet sleuthing and found uh, one of her daughters who had a, a business in the area. I contacted her, let her know who I was and why I was calling, uh, and let her know that I had had a conversation with her mother just earlier that day. She immediately said, oh, 
my mother has Alzheimer's. Uh, she cannot make any of those decisions. I am her legal guardian. I am the one who makes all of her financial and legal decisions for her. But the daughter was very excited. We set up a time to meet. I explained what I was doing. Um, and right. ultimately, it turned out to be a wonderful experience. She had me go and meet her mother because likewise, her mother was very excited to talk to someone from the institution. She put me in touch with other family members. And together as a group, we were able to get this scholarship up and running again after it had languished for 35 years. But similar to Tony, I went to to my supervisor and you know, asked, what do we have here? I, I looked throughout our system. I couldn't find any resources that let me know whether or not I approached that correctly, if there was something else I was supposed to say or was supposed to do. Uh, and I couldn't find anything. Uh, and then Tony and I found each other at a case conference uh, with other like-minded individuals who had very similar concerns at their own institutions. Yeah. When I was at the, uh, so I worked for the epilepsy foundation for a couple of years and uh, you know, the people that we visited, oftentimes they themselves or their family members suffered with significant, in some cases, very significant seizure disorders. And I remember that Danielle and I went out to, to Colorado once and visited with a gentleman who had, in his entire life, had suffered from a seizure disorder that, um, you know, limited his cognitive abilities. I mean, he was perfectly capable of going out to dinner with us, for example, et cetera, et cetera. But he had a uh, – and, and he was an older gentleman – um, who, um, who, because of his limitations, um, because of his age, he, he his financial advisor uh, was was one of his primary. You know, his his financial advisor is making a lot of these decisions, and so it became a very complex sort of scenario. And I I oftentimes sort of reflect on that particular scenario, sort of realizing that some of the predictive tools that I think we like to think that we as fundraisers have in our back pocket that are going to tell us how these things are going to go. You know, every time yeah. you add an additional person, I mean, I mean, take the, take the health concerns out of this equation and just like Tara, like your, um, like your example, that's that, that in some cases is just a, an older individual with a, with a, uh, with a younger child, you know, with an adult child who's saying, Hey, um, I'm going to have a voice in some of these decisions. I mean, that's not terribly unusual. And so um, I'm kind of wondering if part of what you all are getting at, are we talking about basically about donor care? I mean, is that basically what we're talking about? And that, yeah. and, and that some of our, con like, like I like to pick on here on the podcast uh, about some of our naive consumer like assumptions. You're not talking about a relationship with a consumer. Um, you're talking about donor right. care. You're talking about a relationship with a with a donor in much the same way that we would, you know, over at my local hospital, we would talk about the relationship with a patient. Am I right? Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not selling anything. Right. And I think, and I think the the approach of this is again, we're going back to the uh, do the right thing and get caught doing it. So yeah, you know, we we need to wrap our arms around the the meaningful. Uh, place yeah. that our institution, so that this in this instance, the University of Illinois right. has in this family's life, and it's very much the family. It's not. It's when when there are signs of uh, mental uh, incapacity, when there are signs of that this individual has some sort of cognitive impairment. Yeah. Um, then we we still want to honor that history that that individual has with our institution. 
We want to respect it. We want to give them as much uh, autonomy, as much agency as possible. However, um, there, there is only so much that, that we can do in that arena. We have to include others. We have to yep. include guardians, conservators, decision makers around that individual so that we can approach this. In a, and you just said it in a sort of holistic way in the idea that we are caring for them. Yeah. Um, this is no longer about a solicitation. Yeah. This is no longer about metri- metrics. Yeah. You know, this is about stewarding and honoring, not just stewarding their past giving, but also honoring that individual. And I would take it one um, step further too and say that, that in addition around. to including family members, mm-hmm. including decision makers for that donor, you also have to include a number of people at the institution or organization that you're at. You know, fundraising has turnover. People move from organization to organization as fundraisers, and there needs to be some level of institutional knowledge there, you know, involving supervisors, involving people who manage your donor database. This needs to be an ongoing conversation to make sure that this particular knowledge isn't lost. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the key elements of all this, Jason, when we, when, when Tara and I started going down this road, we realized okay, we have to build out some of this stuff because it's not, it's not here. So we, we were looking everywhere. We were talking with others. We were talking with uh, individuals who worked at the Alzheimer's Association. We were talking with other people who, who are in uh, asset management, wealth management. And basically, there's been this approach of the path of least resistance. Do as little as possible. Cover your, cover your behinds, uh-huh. and that's it. Uh-huh. So at some point, Tara and I realized you know, like in uh, Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. <laughs> like we're just, we're going to have to build this thing out. And that's precisely what we did. So we crafted uh, ethical fundraising guidelines for the University of Illinois system. So the University of Illinois system wow. is governed by the University of Illinois Foundation, which is the official gift receiving and investment arm, Yeah. which is a separate 501c3 so that the state of Illinois can't get into the coffers of the University of Illinois. And it's three universities in the system. So we went through the executive uh, operations teams at the foundation and at each university, and we were just beating the drum. And we've been beating the drum for a a year almost now. And, um, uh, you know, to their uh, everlasting credit, leadership understood right away what we were doing. And it's now published uh, at the UIF online. So all universities in the Illinois system now have this ethical framework for fundraising centered around the idea of us honoring, respecting, and protecting our alumni that are also our, our donors and our biggest supporters. So you all are having this conversation. You shared with me before you hit the record button. You're speaking at Case this week. You've spoke. You've spoken at ICON. You've spoke at – there was some other conference that you referenced um, – what is the what's the person in my seat three rows back? What are the types of questions you're getting? Uh, I'm usually the guy who yeah. asks. I'm usually the I'm usually not three rows back. I'm more like six rows back. But usually I'm the one who I'm the first person that usually raises their hand. What types of questions are you getting from that first person who just wants to sort of really probe into this? Uh, I would say one um, of the biggest well, questions I, yeah, that ahead, we Tara, get please. is. <laughs> how do we document this and how do we document this ethically? You know, one of the, uh-huh. the biggest takeaway points that, that yeah. Tony and I have made with, with different groups that we've talked with is that your role as a fundraiser 
is not to diagnose a donor. You are not there to try and diagnose cognitive impairment. You're not there to try to take medical notes in a contact report afterwards. You're trying to get to the root of what you think is going on. Uh, So what we have really stressed is to objectively document uh, your meeting, your interaction. You know, donor, the donor did not remember that we had a meeting scheduled today. The donor repeated them the same story three or four times. The donor could not recall their favorite meal when we go to the same place for lunch for all of our meetings. There are ways to objectively document your experience that will allow uh, anyone who goes back to review the interactions with this particular donor to give them the heads up that there is something going on, um, you know, without violating their privacy or making assumptions that, that us as fundraisers really are not qualified to make. So I would say that's one mm-hmm. of the really big takeaway points and one of the big questions that we get often from other mm-hmm. fundraisers that we talk to. Yeah, I think um, on the heels of that too, Jason, and I, I, I don't know how what your stance is. Well, I think I do. I've listened to this uh, podcast before, but we're, we're in a very metrics-driven yeah. profession. Yeah. And, it, and there are lots of individuals who are uh, touting their approaches and they're, you know, they're all stars, they're rock stars, whatever. Um, so uh, oftentimes we'll get the question, you know, like, well, are you sure we can't do this? You know, like, I, you know, I, I, I know this individual, we've known each other for X number of years. And, you know, I, I, I know that they would really enjoy this opportunity. And, and then at that point, I, I uh, hearken back to Tara because she has the definition of donative capacity, which uh, I assure you, Jason, that thing has teeth. And, you know, there, there is only so much you can do legally in those circumstances. And so that's where we're, we're saying, you know, play it safe. Don't try to be a rock star. Try, try to be a decent human being. You know, uh, uh, sometimes not getting the gift is the right thing to do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've probably listened to the podcast just enough to know that I'm, I'm very opposed to some of our predictive tools. I think some of the biggest challenges that we have in fundraising is that we've a, we, we originate, most of our thinking originates from PR, advertising, and marketing at the beginning of the 20th century, which has now morphed over a century into a lot, the reliance on a lot of these predictive tools, which, which in some cases is just making the argument, you know, just enlightens it sort of, it's the idea of doing your homework. But then there's things that you can only learn in the field. There's only things you can learn in the moment. And the only thing I can do when I'm coaching a development officer, you know, if I'm a boss and I'm saying, you know, Tony, you need to get out there into the field. You're only going to learn some things while you're there. Um, And to have a metric system that suggests that Mr. Johnson or Mrs. Smith, you've got to bring home a check from them based on without consideration of things that you learn there literally in real time um, is a complete disregard for just, just human complexity, just the messiness of what it means to be human beings. I mean, this is all human work on both sides of the exchange. And the other thing I, the other thing I'm curious of, I'm not hearing that we flee from or run from these opportunities. What I'm hearing is we just have to learn how to navigate these relationships with perhaps in some cases, either giving the relationship more time or 
in, in probably in the most likely scenarios, engage these other circles of individuals, family members, mm-hmm. advisors, you know, powers of attorney, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because we, you know, as fundraisers, aren't we the agents of sort of this generous exchange of charitable gifts? And these people, just like anybody else, you know, somebody who's 65 years old, who has limited cognitive cognitive abilities should not be forbidden from having a relationship with any one of the three of us and be able to give to the university of Illinois. Um, it just means that our work has to be a little more done carefully. Am I right? It, yeah, there's a duty of care. Yes. And yes. And one of the, um, one of the amazing things that I've learned in this journey with, with Tara specifically is when she unpacks donative capacity and, um, this is also something that we don't want to step in because there are legal ramifications. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, if I may, Sarah, yeah, Sarah you have to go. Every once in a while, while I dig into my back pocket like and I brush off that duty for just me. a hot second when I talk to fundraisers about what's going on. Uh, but really, when we're talking about donative capacity, what it means is whether or not a donor has the mental awareness um, and meets a legal threshold of being able to give a gift. Um, Now, a lot of fundraisers uh, have been trained on or hear about the term testamentary capacity, and that's whether or not someone has the ability to create an estate plan, write a will, you know, leave a gift to an institution or an organization in in a trust. Um, Donative capacity is arguably a a one step higher than that, uh, because when someone writes a will, say I decide to, to leave my institution a large sum of money, at any point in time prior to my passing, I can go ahead and change that. It's not immutable. Uh, I can go in and I can suddenly decide I don't want to do that. I want to give my wealth elsewhere. With donative capacity, you're making a gift that is permanent in that moment. So in order to you know, have the legal donative capacity to make a gift, not only do you have to know that you're making a gift, know what or how much it is that you're giving, know how it relates to your overall wealth, uh, but you also have to understand that it's permanent. Uh, it's, it's an inter vivos gift. You cannot take it back when, when you make that gift when you're alive. And not only does a donor have to have an awareness of all those different elements, they have to know how it relates uh, to each other. So you can't just pick apart, oh, they got one and they got three. Um, but they have to understand all of those things in that conversation and how they're relating to one another with this particular gift. Um, and because there is that permanence uh, to a gift that is being made. And it is arguably a higher legal standard than one of just making a planned gift uh, that could be changed later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's an irrevocability to it. Like you said, it's permanent. I mean, there's no, you don't make a gift to a, a charity and then take it back uh, a month or two later. And one of the things, Jason, that we've learned is that um, mm-hmm. you also don't want to see your institution right. on the cover of the newspaper. Or, you know, at the top of Google News Aggregator. (laughs) I mean, so it's not just doing the right thing and it's not just caring for people. Uh, You know, it's it's also uh, protecting your institution, protecting yourself, because there is like vast damage that has been done to different institutions because they this has come to light that they predated on. elderly, vulnerable individuals, you know, in a way that was opportunistic, in the in a way that meant that there was legal action taken against them, 
which was on the cover of the LA Times. I mean, right. this is yes. this is stuff that no one wants to see. Um, so again, we're hearkening back to the overall theme, which is do the right thing and get caught doing it, meaning document it, yeah. make sure that others know about it. And you know, if there is something that's FOIA-able, then great, <laughs> because you've got it all spelled out. You know, you have done your due diligence to ensure and, and that too, you know, by including you family members, by including up, decision doing makers, the right you know, by making sure that everyone who's who loves this donor and is looking out for their well-being yes, is aware right. of what is going on. That's also going to mitigate substantial amounts of risk, both for you as a fundraiser and for your institution. You know, as well as continuing to ensure that this is really what the donor wants. We just had a conversation. We just had a conversation here on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago, probably a month ago. And then we had a conversation probably six months ago uh, with a gentleman from uh, who's become a good friend and, and, and uh, up in uh, the, the, the Toledo, Detroit area. And we were talking about um, the, the relationship with these extended family members. You know, there is a circle of family. There's a circle of influencers that are of the more meaningful the gift gets, right? The more significant in size or the more meaningful it gets. So you don't have to assign a number to it necessarily, but the more, more meaningful and significant, just using those as, as perhaps appropriate adjectives, the more likely you're going to have multiple voices that are going to play a role in this. And and that to me just means complexity. But what, but what, what I think I'm also hearing is is what the conversation was here recently on the podcast, uh, and, and that is being able when we're when we're speaking of gifts differently than commodities, which is a which is a thing I've been talking a lot about here on the podcast. When we're talking about the exchange of gifts rather than commodities, the relationship has to precede the gift. That's just a, sure. that's just an argument that I don't think fundraising has sort of made enough for itself that if there is no relationship there then the gift really shouldn't be there and we like to call these things gifts but if all you're doing is sort of closing deals there is no mm -hmm. gift and we're in the business of soliciting gifts um and it seems to me like it, 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 and there's an awareness Maybe it's just amongst our generation. I don't know what it is, but there's a there's a there's an awareness of of fundraisers today, and they're looking at both sides of the exchange. They're looking at both the donor, as you all are. You're looking at the the care and the responsibility that we have for the donor. But there's also people who are also looking at the beneficiary and how we're utilizing them in photographs, for example, they're asking some of the same questions you all are asking, you know, do we mm -hmm. exploit the, 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 the photograph of a child who's being fed in a, you know, in a third world country, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is that part of what's going on here is that we're just a generation of fundraisers who are just willing to ask some really hard questions. Is that what's going on here? I mean, I, I would, I would think so. I would think that um, one of the opportunities we have is to think a little more deeply about these mm -hmm. uh, questions mm -hmm. and these problems and these challenges. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I feel like it's a luxury. So, so, you know, we are able to dig in and dig into the process, which makes it an intrinsically more meaningful process. You know, I think anytime we are looking at 
um, a more transactional approach, a more uh, maybe 20th century kind of mad men approach to right. things. Yes. I think we, we, we lose our way. Yeah. Right. And, and so for me, at least, um, you know, may, maybe it will impinge or uh, maybe it will uh, detract from, from a metric, but in the larger metric of life, uh, it's going to be more rewarding, more meaningful. And ultimately, those uh, larger family units that you're discussing where we've got to worry about uh, grandchildren or we've got to be concerned with other extended members of the family. I mean, I can think of a multi-generational family gift at Illinois um, that had just monumental impact. It's our, our, our engineering college is called Granger. And we have multiple generations now who have solidified the naming of that college in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And to me, anything in life that is meaningful is a process. And anytime we try to cheat the process, we end up robbing ourselves of meaning. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds a little hippy dippy, but it's entirely true. You, you take the Cliff's notes and you buy it and you don't read the book. Guess what? You didn't read the book. Yeah. You may have taken the test. You may have gotten a decent grade but you didn't go through that experience firsthand. And that's going to ultimately rob the user. So um, again, it's a little hippy dippy, but I believe in it in my heart. You know, we got to do the right thing. We got to get caught doing it. And if it's, if it's a, a, a painful broken path, then so be it. That's, that's our charge. Like that's, that's what we signed up for when we decided to become professional fundraisers. And if it becomes more difficult, if it becomes more challenging than good, we're doing the right thing. It's typically the easy path that you get in trouble with. <laughs> there's, not, there's nothing. There's nothing. I, I, I don't think I've ever used it. Hip, hippy dippy. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing hippy dippy about what you're talking about, Tony. We have a problem in this sector and we in this space, and we all know it, that fundraisers don't stick around for more than 18 to 24 months. We've got donors who don't mm -hmm. stick around very long either. And what you're calling hippy dippy is finding that meaning that we all need to find. And if we don't start mm -hmm. designing fundraising where we can find that meaning and we only find meaning in that social interaction. So if that inner social interaction with this donor on the other side of the table happens mm -hmm. to require more of you, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. I'm sorry. Right? Sure. <laughs> that, sure. That's what's yeah. going to keep you in your job. I bet you'll I mean, am, am I right to say that, that the more, you may not close these gifts more quickly, but you're sure as hell likely to stay on this payroll at this organization longer and probably be able to tell better stories and better understand. I mean, goodness gracious, am I right? Yeah, I mean, Jason, I, you know, I've only been doing this for about six years. I've never had a problem meeting my goals. Yes. I, I think one of the things about which I am most proud is that my my donors and uh, my coworkers trust me. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, you know, I think we're only as good as our word. And so when folks see that intent and they know you don't have an angle, I mean, you might, you know, what, someone once asked me, what's your angle? I said, you know, my angle is to yeah, do a good job and not be a jerk. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's doing the right thing. Tara, I've got a question. Tara, I've got a question. It, what what is the scope? What is the scope of things that we're talking about here? I mean, I get dementia, and I get that we very generically sometimes refer to things as mental illness. But what are the types of things that 
you know, short list of a do- what are the things that a fundraiser is likely yeah, to encounter so when they have lunch specifically with on issues Smith of cognitive impairment. So, so not so much about? necessarily on trying to diagnose a, a mental illness, but really more of a diminished capacity. Okay. Mostly due to age. Um, however, you know, some types of dementia okay, are right. as a result of of trauma, okay, of right. of health issues. You know, anything that can lead to a decrease of cognition. Um, that again, going back to sort of that legal standard, means that they no longer have the capacity to make a gift. Um, you know, I know sort of throughout this conversation, Tony and I have definitely hit on a few of some of the more major signs mm-hmm. and symptoms. So, you know, general forgetfulness, um, loss of uh, spatial awareness, loss of temporal awareness. So not really understanding where they are, what time it is, uh, repeating things uh, over and over, uh, a loss of short-term memory. Uh, so not maybe not re- recalling a conversation that you had last week, but maybe they do remember, you know, meetings that you had three to five years ago. Um, there, there's a number, I know the Alzheimer's Association yeah. has a wonderful uh, list of some of the top signs and symptoms uh, of dementia. Uh, we've we've uh, definitely gone back to that a number of times in terms of helping our own fundraisers at Illinois understand um, some of the signs that they may see with, with fundraisers. Um, but generally speaking, uh, the, those are some of the big ones that when you're sitting down for a meeting with a donor that you're you're generally going to see. Tony, are there any that that I've skipped over that that would be helpful to talk about as well? No, I think I think you you hit it on the head, Tara. Mm-hmm. And I think um, uh, echoing or underscoring something you said earlier, you know, part of this is also institutional preparedness. So you know, to to have this work um, being done, Jason, not just when we're sitting down in front of the donor, but ahead of time, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, uh, upon reflection afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of one of the linchpins of our our guidelines um, that we crafted over the last year plus is that, you know, we are doing work ahead of time and then we are doing work thereafter. So we're having these uh, preparatory meetings and then these sort of downloads thereafter where we are uh, trying as as well as we can to be prepared for what's coming and then try to make sure that it is being addressed appropriately thereafter. You know, all institutions have CRMs that they work with. Yeah. And so is there is there a way to encode uh, some of the donor life cycle into the work that we're conducting so that this is appropriately, that these are learned experiences, that this isn't just, you know, we, we go into a room. And we ask the number of MGOs in the room to raise their hands if they've had any experiences like this. And inevitably, it's over 80% of the room that raises their hands. So it's not just that we are experiencing this, but that we are learning from this experience. One of the things we've also done, Jason, um, we have a a consulting group. It's called Cognitive Empowerment. Mm -hmm. Our website is cognitiveempowerment.com because we're wanting to help others uh, on the same journey that we are on, be they institutions, small shops, what have you. Um, We found that there's a great need for this in this kind of a service, um, this kind of approach, the service-based approach, if you will, not just in higher ed, but also in things like wealth management, uh, uh, community foundations, supporting organizations. These These are topics that should be top of mind for all of our 
colleagues as they are going about doing their meaningful work. And to not forecast it, to not be prepared for it, mm-hmm. is, in my opinion, a sin of omission. Because we know people are going to go out and have these experiences, and they need to be forearmed. And if they're not, um, then we're really sending them out uh, uh, into the trenches with no kind of tools whatsoever to defend themselves. You know, uh, Tara, you mentioned earlier institutional knowledge, and and then Tony just referenced the CRM. Is there a privacy? Is there a privacy element to this? And like how we record? So I go and say I have lunch with Mrs. Smith. I learn something, and then how I record that information. You know, I just I just saw a con. I was just thumbing through some something on social media this weekend. And it was a fundraiser who was talking about the privacy issues that we've yet to encounter that, that perhaps they're navigating, for example, in the United Kingdom, but that we haven't encountered here in the U S and that people don't want this type of information. You know, if I'm a donor, I don't want, or if I'm a donor's son, I may not want this information tracked in your CRM. Typically Um, speaking, I'm speaking in very broad generalities here. Uh, when it comes to hired institutions, one of the big concerns uh, as it c- pertains to cognitive impairment issues would be right. HIPAA violations. Now, generally speaking, uh, higher ed institutions do not fall under HIPAA, but that still, as you said, doesn't mean that we want to be yeah. putting in very private, very personal medical information into our CRMs. Yeah. Um, and depending on the type of fundraising you're doing, if you are utilizing specific type of medical information, then it's possible that your fundraising right. does fall under HIPAA. And in that case, you need to have additional trainings. Yes, there's absolutely some some different information and restrictions that would go into how you document things, mm-hmm. which is why we, again, go back to, you know, observational, you know, objective things that would happen in a meeting, you know, not trying to diagnose. Again, we cannot stress that enough. That's one of the biggest things that we try to impart upon the fundraisers that we have spoken to is that your job is absolutely not to diagnose a donor, but just to document facts, facts about what happened in a meeting, facts about any follow-up in phone calls or emails. Um, And again, not trying to make assumptions, really as yeah. much as possible, not putting in any medical information. Um, you know, even if say, you know, in my situation, when I had that concerning phone call with a donor and the daughter explicitly told yeah. me that her mother had Alzheimer's, I did not put that in the contact report. I just said future communication needs to happen with the daughter. And I made sure to, to create a record for her in our CRM. And, you know, that's as far as it Mm -hmm. needs to go. So, you know, absolutely there's privacy concerns there. And it's something, um, again, that, yes, Tony and I are hoping that we can can help other institutions and organizations that are concerned about this navigate this particularly tricky issue. Yeah. I mean, how many of us have put something stupid in a CRM like – you know, I think she has dementia or something, right? Some stupid statement like that. And you, and you, and then, and then all of a sudden it gets, it, it bites you in the ass, you know, five years later when something like this becomes a problem. Um, yeah, I totally, I totally get it. Uh, I have had both of your time for about 45 minutes. Um, this has been an extremely intriguing conversation. I know that you are both on the speaking circuit, speaking at multiple conferences. Sounds like you're speaking at one this week. Um, but I think there's probably a mess of people who are listening to the conversation today that are going to want to know how to reach out to 
to one of you or both of you, um, how, how would people do that? Tell us how to do that. Yeah, I think the easiest, easiest way to, to guide people to the work that we're conducting is to go to our website, which is cognitiveempowerment.com. Uh, I can be reached via email at Tony at Cognitive Empowerment, and Tara can be reached at Tara at Cognitive Empowerment. As you said, we're coming to an area near you. Uh, we're going to be speaking at Case 5 this week, mm-hmm. and um, we've, we've done multiple uh, talks at AFP, uh, National Association for Charitable Gift Planners, and we're just going to continue to talk about this uh, over and over and over until we feel like we're making the right kinds of change in our profession. Thank you. Well, the fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed your time. Thank you. I'm sure you'll hear from, from plenty. You're always welcome back. Thank you so much, Jason. This has been an awesome, awesome. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, Thank opportunity. you. So. I think we're just floored by the fact that you're uh, uh, so welcoming and open to us talking about this. So thank you so much. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.